I believe in Christ, he is my king. With all my heart to him I'll sing. I'll raise my voice in praise and joy, in grand amens my tongue employ. Scriptures reveal the divine desires of the Lord in our behalf. Each of us should have a burning desire to search the scriptures diligently and daily to seek the will of the Lord in our life. Brothers and sisters, on very thin pages, thick with meaning, are some almost hidden scriptures. Hence we are urged to search, feast, and ponder. If you are lonely, please know you can find comfort. If you are discouraged, please know you can find hope. If you are poor in spirit, please know you can be strengthened. If you feel you are broken, please know you can be mended. Welcome back to Go and Do. This week we've got Alma chapters 43 through 52 where we talk about Captain Moroni and the creation of the title of liberty, as well as other fortifications and preparations they made for combat against the Lamanites. We also talk about Amalekiah and some of the things that he does that really are symbols for how Satan works against us spiritually in today's world. There's a lot to learn from these chapters, and we don't get to all of it, but we hope that you can benefit from this discussion. Thanks. At the beginning of this thing, it's interesting because the the manual it kind of says uh, we read the words in Alma forty three, and where where Mormon kind of shifts gear and, and kind of says it now I return to an account of the wars between the Nephites and the Lamanites. So he had just Mormon has just included uh, Alma kind of discourses or counsel to his sons. And then after that, he kind of shifts and says, and now here's what happened kind of next. Here are some wars and, and some things that happened. And then in the manual, it says, it's true that we have our share of wars in the latter days, but there is value in the words beyond the descriptions of strategy, strategy and strategy of war. His words also prepare us for a war which we are all enlisted, the war we're fighting each day against the forces of evil. This war is very real. And the outcome affects our eternal life. Like the Nephites, we are inspired by a better cause, which is our God, our religion, and freedom, and our peace, our families. Moroni called this the cost of the, the cause of the Christians. And so I thought it was really interesting. And if we go up to the to the I don't know the intro little phrases. It kind of tells us it seems like the events describing these chapters are not particularly re relevant to you, but it is all scriptures. The Lord has a message for you, you know, and I think that's true, you know, of me when I first read these chapters, because you often you you get going on the Book of Mormon. You feel like you're getting very direct, easy to understand spiritual insights. And then we all, you know, you hear it everywhere. We have to, then you hit the war chapters, you know, and you just got to soldier on. You got to push through it, you know. But I don't know. I, I kind of enjoy them. When you look at through the eye of symbolism, 
and and what it could what could Mormon have seen in these stories that kind of foreshadows our day that he said I'll put these in there because if they read them they may understand either what caused us to fail or what were our shortcomings or what were our strengths and what were our learnings yeah not only that but I think that there's a lot to be said about the symbols of all of this like if you look at it as we are in a war between good and evil um, then a lot of these kind of strategies, the fact that they were successful because they were wearing armor versus those that weren't. You know, we learn about the armor of God, and we learn about these symbols and what they could possibly represent. And I just think, you think about the strategies they use, they're basically preparing before the war starts. You know, they're going into the fight ready to defend themselves and to attack. And I think that when you put that into our perspective, yes, I am. my life is not being constantly threatened. I'm not in a, a physical war with anyone. But uh, my spirit and my soul is in a constant war against temptation and against being lazy, you know? And I think when you look at what am I doing before, what ways am I fortifying myself, what ways am I putting on armor, what ways am I using strategy in, in the spiritual sense, this is just as valuable as any other section of the Book of Mormon. And, you know, you were mentioning that um, they kind of start to lose ground a little bit because there's so many Lamanites and they're fighting so, like, well, like it says, like dragons, you know. They're so uh, vicious and they're attacking. They start to kind of fall behind a little bit. And then Moroni reminds them, and I think that that's what the brethren do every six months in general conference. Um, we even get it now through social media. They put out these simple posts, you know, that kind of remind us to hear him and things like that. And it's a way of saying, hey, remember why we're doing this. Remember the cause. Remember the, the war that we're in. Don't, don't shirk, you know, don't fall behind on this. And I think a lot of times we need those little reminders to say, yeah, I, I, I could do better. You know, I, I can be better than this. No, I, I thought it was interesting that, uh, you know, it mentions in here, Moroni, several times that they weren't delighting in bloodshed. They didn't want to fight. And then, and so when when they get do get the upper hand in that battle uh, by the river, uh, um, Sidon, sorry, when, when they get the upper hand by the river, over the Lamanites, they stop and they say, hey, will you guys promise, lay down your weapons and promise you won't come, promise to leave us alone. And uh, it's funny because uh, Sarahemla, their leader, uh, which it says um, he was a very bloodthirsty guy and wanted to subjugate them all to, to, to bondage, right, all the Nephites. Um, he, he said, he kind of said, okay, we'll give you our weapons, but we won't make a promise because we know we will break it or our children will break it. It, it made me, it reminded me a lot of like a common sentiment that we have nowadays that, uh, oh, I, I can't help myself. This is just how I am. Uh, you know, like we've premeditated things to a level where we don't have agency or we appear as if 
we're the victim in the scenario, you know. And then Sarah Hamla, he even says to to um, uh, to to Captain Moroni, uh, you know, you you won not because of your God, but because you had armor. And yeah, it's, in, it's in verse nine. Yeah, he attributes it to, uh, yeah, it's we do not believe in your God. He has delivered us into your hands. We believe that it is your cunning that has preserved you from our swords. Behold, it is your breastplates and your shield. And it's interesting because it part he's partially right. It was their their better armor and their better defense and it, that helped them against overwhelming odds. But what he doesn't see is that they were prepared because the Lord told them to do something very practical, you know, very practical. It wasn't magical. It was very practical. Hey, you guys should gird up your loins. You guys should have armor. And then later on, we're going to see a very similar practical approach where, hey, grab your cities, especially the weaker ones, and dig about them and put the ramparts and put uh, fortifications, right? Because not because you're scared, not because you you um, you don't believe that I can come down with a pillar of fire and burn them all, but because some of these things are very practical, you know. Well, and that goes, I think, think hand in hand with that reminder that Moroni gives them of why they're fighting. If they'd showed up, you know, in loincloths like the Lamanites and said, "God will save us, God will help us win," uh, they may not have won, because God would have been like, um, "Listen." I can do anything, but I also require that you do something. Or if they had said, we don't need God, we've got shields and armor and good weapons, we're good. We can handle it. We don't need God for this. Then they probably would not have survived. And that just goes to show that there's faith and action, right? Both of those are what led to their victory. And that's what Moroni was trying to remind them. Yeah, you know what? What's preserving us right now are the fact that we have armor. But if we're gonna, if we're going to end up losing this if we don't remember the spiritual reason behind why we're fighting this war. And I think when you look at us, when you look at our lives, and you say, "Okay, I cannot just say I have faith that God will save me. I have faith that God will take care of me, and then not, not do anything to support that faith, not do anything to demonstrate that faith to those around me and to my God." I got to show him, not only do I believe that you have all the power to do it, but here's, I'm reading my scriptures, I'm serving others, I'm, you know, praying every day to show my connection. Like, it's two-sided, and I think that a lot of times the Lamanites didn't quite understand that, and that's why they're saying, look, it's not your God, it's your technology that's saving you right now. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that, because that, that reminds me of... Um... Our current prophet, President Nelson, who is a very intelligent, scientific man, right? But yet he is also a prophet of God, you know? And he gives us advice that's sound, that's practical, yet also gives us spiritual advice, you know? And... 
it reminds me of a conference talk. I don't know who it was. I want to say it was Elder Scott, but he he was mentioning about it was it was about health and it was about priests of blessing and health concerns, and and he said you know kind of he kind of said you go do the best you know how and then you pray and, and leave it up to God, meaning you cannot ignore good medical advice or not go to the doctor and have a life-saving procedure because you prayed and you think you'll be healed because that can also be the byproduct how many procedures or especially the stint the heart opening stint that president nelson said it kind of came to him as inspiration and now it's a procedure millions of people have had and they don't think Oh, I thank God for this procedure. They think the doctor, and they think you know the, the hospital, and they think the science, but they don't realize that God is behind that as well. You know, inspiring men and women. You know, and there's many aspects of our life that we we can so quickly, like Sarah Hemla, say, "Oh no, it's because of your shields. It's because of this." And you don't think, "Oh no, it's because of the inspiration that was received and the preparation." And the practical knowledge and agency people use to develop something. I think the other the other interesting thing about this oath that he asked them to make, you know, he basically tells them it's an oath of peace or whatever. And Zarahemna, he he says, "We will not suffer ourselves to take an oath unto you, which we know that we shall break." And also. Sword, but take our weapons of war and suffer that we may depart into the wilderness. Otherwise, we will return our swords and we will perish or conquer. He's basically saying, I mean, kind of to his credit, he's saying, I'm not going to make an oath that I know I'm not going to keep. I'll give you my weapons of war because clearly we're defeated. We've been, we've been trapped here and we're in a bad situation. But I'm not going to make an oath right now. And <laughs> Moroni's response to this whole thing, including the doubting of of the power of God and all of that is he, he goes, behold, we will end the conflict. It's like, okay, you know what? If you're not going to take this oath, boys, let's do this thing, you know? And it was, it was kind of a definitive way to say, I, I, we're not going to say, okay, well, at least they gave up their weapons. There's no compromise to truth. You're not only are you going to give up your weapons, but you're going to, you're going to make this oath. Otherwise we're going to keep going. That's the threat, and it's not a thinly veiled threat either. It's okay, then we got to keep going. I cannot recall the words which I have spoken. Therefore, the Lord liveth, ye shall not depart except ye depart with an oath, that ye will not return again against us until war. I, I always thought that uh, it was silly when I was younger that why wouldn't Sir Hamla be like, yeah, we make an oath <laughs> and then come back next Tuesday, right? Right. Um, but in their culture, it must have been something that the, even the Lamanites still had high value of, of a no oath, you know. And I, I and I think Moroni wouldn't have asked for an oath if he if that didn't hold value in their culture. You know what I mean? Because I, I always thought, man, that is a quite a lot. Why wouldn't I just take an oath and then just come back next week? You know, go go regroup and come back. But to them, that was of high. It'd be almost the equivalent of us uh, sign this this contract, this legal document, 
that you know if you break it, okay, there's gonna be a lot of consequences to that. You know, there's a, you know, in our day we look at like legal contracts as you don't break those. You don't want to go to jail, right? You don't want to go to jail. You know, um, you, you know, and and I thought that was interesting. You know, oaths were very important to these people. Very similar to, you know, when Nephi gets an oath from. Uh, the Serb of Laban, you know, that, hey, okay, I'll go with you guys. And then all their fears seized, you know, Sorum, I think. And then, um, so next we go into, um, so so it says uh, to, 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 at the end of the chapter, the armies of the Nephites or of Moroni returned and came to their houses and came to their land and thus ended the 18th year of the reign of the judges. And it's interesting because throughout these next chapters, there's going to be a lot of 18th year, 20th year, so two years pass away. And for me, I, I never keep good track of that. But in between these chapters, some time passes, years sometimes. And as yeah. you read it, it often feels like it all happened like at once, you know. Because right now, uh, I think Alma, he's going to meet with Helaman. And kind of give him a, a little uh, priesthood interview uh, <laughs> yeah. to see if he's willing to take these sacred records, you know. And then we'll read of another gentleman who I think his name was Nephiha, who he was the the high priest of the land, not the high priest, the chief judge of the land, and he was a very righteous chief judge. But it mentions that Alma did not entrust him the records. He chose to entrust them to Helaman. And so you begin to see this breakout between the chief judge or the government of the Nephites that's allowed and empowered to do certain things, and then the um, almost like the leaders or the prophets or the priesthood of the Nephites that do other things. And so on one hand, you get Moroni with the Nephite government rights, bolstering army, creating encampments, uh, creating fortifications. And then you get Helaman and his brothers going out and preaching the word and stirring up the people. And oftentimes Mor Mormon, Moroni, and the chief judge do things that implore the people to righteousness and are good examples. And Helaman will eventually also gather his own little army and go fight. So it kind of gets a little blurry if you want to think about it like a separation between church and state because mm -hmm. it almost feels one in the same. But then when Moroni goes to pull down rebellions and to kill some of the, the, the instigators and do all these things, he gets permission from the chief judge and gets authority to do these things. So he's not out there being a, a renegade or a... Or a taking the matter into his own hands. And, and the people do vote several times for things. They do agree and they take votes. Do we want to, do you guys want to continue down this path? Do you want to continue down this path? And, and there's, what's it called? There's conflicts of opinions based on certain policies that want, people want to change this policy or what. And because of that, we didn't get our way, we were outvoted, or the people chose this way, we'll start our own rebellion, we'll go break off, or we'll go join the Lamanites, and, and now we hate the Nephites. So it's, 
when I when I was looking at it at that level, I was thinking, wow, this is right now. This is exactly kind of what we're going through. Yeah, it's interesting, the dynamic, because Moroni, while I think he was a man of God, uh, Helaman is technically the prophet of the time, you know, and Moroni is just like a, a really good follower of Christ and a really good follower of the gospel. And I think that that's really important because it dictates a lot of the decisions he makes and a lot of the, the policies that he states, including the title of liberty, right? When he brings that up and starts making that uh, an important aspect of their lives. Um, once again, a way to remind everyone of the reason why they're doing all of this stuff, the reason why they continue to fight. Um, it, it's interesting because that title of liberty is timeless. That is not something that's only applicable to Nephite and Lamanite times. That's something that anyone can can apply and it's without uh any particular politics behind it either it's just kind of like look here's why we're doing this alma was so uh loved by the people i think that this uh, almost like this almost like a fable came out about what happened to him and he kind of walked off into the distance and uh and no one ever saw him again. But, I mean, in verse 18 of chapter 45, it says, And when Alma had done this, he departed out of the land of Zarahemla, as if to go to the land of Melech. And it came to pass that he was never heard of more. And of his death or burial we know not of. Behold, this we know, we know that he was a righteous man. And the saying went abroad in the church that he was taken up by the Spirit, or buried by the hand of the Lord, even as Moses. But behold, the scriptures say that the Lord took Moses unto himself. And we suppose that he has also received Alma in the spirit unto himself. Therefore, for this cause, we know nothing concerning his death and burial. And I thought that was interesting because that's the only time we read of something like that with one of these prophets. Um, but you look at Alma and we just got done reading of all the times that he went and preached again and he relinquished the, the judgment seat and went to these people and then went to those ones and then went to this. And, and, and there's that section a couple of chapters ago where he says, I am so tired of this. When, wh why do we have to do this again? Why are we so, you know, it's, I think it was when he met the people with um, Ramyamtum it says he was exceedingly astonished and, and he's, he was kind of weighed down by sorrow because of the wickedness of the people, right? And it'd be nice to think that the Lord said, come on, you've done enough. You know, you got to pass. It's, it's Helaman's turn and Moroni's turn. And I don't know. I kind of like that because I can imagine it was a well-needed rest, a well-earned rest. Uh, that he could, you know, he, he did the best he could, and he has really good sons that will carry on. You know, in verse 22 of chapter 45, it says, And therefore Helaman and his brethren went forth to establish the church again in all the land, yea, in every city throughout the land, which was possessed by the people of Nephi. 
And it came to pass that they did appoint priests and teachers throughout the land over all the church. You know, and it's funny because it makes it sound as if they're doing this. I'm sure this has done before. I'm sure there are teachers, but it's interesting how many times they kind of have to, we have to re, either restructure or reinvigorate ourselves or revitalize. Um, very much like, like you mentioned, like general conference, every six months, we kind of get a kick in the rear and it's like, all right, let's clean things up a little. Let's, let's recommit ourselves. Let's, and it's similar to what we need to do every week when we take the sacrament. Okay, this week was a little bit dicey. Let's recommit ourselves. Let's let's get back on track. Let's do this, and it's and that is what is repentance. When 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 they ask us to preach nothing but repentance to these people or this generation, or we're told those things, it's basically preach nothing but continuously recommit yourself to the Lord. Continuously go back to Him. Uh, filter out what didn't work and replace it with good habits that will work, little by yeah. little. Right. And it's interesting because even at, immediately after they went and did that, it says in verse 23, And it came to pass that after Helaman and his brethren had appointed priests and teachers all over the over the churches, that are, there arose a dissension among them, and they would not give heed to the words of Helaman and his brethren. But they grew proud, being lifted up in their hearts because of their exceedingly great riches. Therefore they grew rich in their own eyes, and would not give heed to their words to walk uprightly before God. So even after going out and reestablishing everything and calling new people and stuff, those guys started to get a little full of themselves and think they were something special and start to act in a prideful way rather than in a humble servant way. And that is probably more of a reason for them to have to go out and, and recheck things, you know? <laughs> Let's go out and, and see what's going on. Oh, gosh. This guy's either quit and has faded away and doesn't really care anymore, or he's acting with this air of extra authority that he's above everyone else, and neither one of those is right. It's time for us to clean house and, and call some new guys, you know? And it, it, especially right now in these war chapters where you can see there's so much contention, there's so much of this, um, people just forgetting and not remembering the whole purpose behind why the gospel is there and why they're doing what they're doing. They constantly have to be reminding them. They put up a flag in every city saying, this is the reason why we do stuff. And that wasn't even enough, you know, to remind everybody. I mean, it was a, a great gesture, but at the same time, these guys still kind of forgot the purpose. It made me think of a lot about the garment the sacred garment that we're giving and that it's symbolism and it's meaning to us and that it can be just a piece of fabric it can be uh, whatever just this many threads of cotton or polyester if you like and it can just be cloth or it can be very holy and meaningful and sacred but a lot of that is dependent on you it's not dependent on the garment itself. You know what I mean? And and it's it's kind of like these symbols uh, that they, they you know the standard of liberty, the liahona. How they you know oftentimes Alma used it to to teach. I think Oriental. He said, "Hey, remember the liahona? It, it was it became meaningful and a symbol 
because of what they decided that it would remind them. And I think in my day, if if in your day you see a symbol, maybe it's just a picture of the temple on your way out the door, and it makes you just for a second stop and remember, oh, the temple, you know, the house of God, you know, our covenant, our family, or I'm grateful I can go there. Even just that small thing can give you power and make it meaningful and invite the spirit and change your day. Or if we just hang it up and forget about it, walk past it and don't give it a thought, it's not meaningful. And then we get a Malachi. The bad guy. (laughs) Yeah. He's an interesting dude. He basically just wants power, and it seems like he's determined to do whatever it takes to get it. And he knows that he's not going to get it through just being a good guy and working hard, so he has to do all kinds of different schemes and tactics to be able to get it. And, wow, it's a perfect, perfect illustration of how Satan works. Satan will never go directly to you and demand that you do something horrible. But he will work you around and between and through even well intent good intentions. Yeah. To get you to think a certain way or act a certain way or end up justifying to yourself that things are not that way. Man, it, it's so such a good illustration of you know, talk about strategy and this is all well, kind of kind of war, but for us the, in the spiritual war, it's a perfect illustration of Satan's strategy, right? He's kind of a evil genius because he he gained power by being by coming forward as if he was very loyal and benign and friendly, and then he murdered those people, ultimately the king, and then riled up the Lamanites to say, anyone who loved the king. You're with me, right? We're going to eventually... This is a wrong. We cannot let this stand. Not in my house, right? And then... and well, But what they didn't realize is he's the one who did it. He's the bad one. And it's just manipulation, manipulation, and like war propaganda. Like he, he then set up other Amalekites, I think they're called, to be leaders, to, to, to speak up in towns against the Nephites, It was just, how do we vilify the Nephites, make them uh, our enemies? How do we stir up these people? Because it's, you know, it's it's probably not an easy thing to stir up an entire nation, especially the way that, you know, you read later these marches, they're marching for days to go fight. It's not like they're getting an airplane and and drop parachutes and then MREs fall out. It's not like our day where... Our battles are pretty instant. These people, I mean, you're going to war, it's going to be years. And it's like, you're in your walking the whole time. And then you got to go try to poke somebody with a stick. You know, um, it's not easy. You know, it's not, you know, but, but that's one of the things that, that really stuck out to me was how easily people were deceived. Yeah. Um, in in the common thread here was he gained power by making a common enemy, making an enemy, bl- putting the blame, and it's very similar. It reminded me a lot of uh, 
the Third Reich. Uh, our, our current situation, the wrongs were done because of this. Let's right. focus on that. And then you build this industrial complex. Well, that's all and then, to, then he searched out. He wanted to be king. But he knew, I, I can't just go and proclaim myself that. So he went and found lower judges that wanted power. Right? All of this surrounds power and, and being able to dictate what happens. And then he started to flatter them and started to get on their good side and win them over. That they would support him, establish him as the king. So he didn't go and, and try and kill the king directly. At first it's just like, hey, I'm going to get on the good side of people in power. That they will, I want it to seem like it's their idea, right? I don't want to come and say, hey guys, I want to be king, vote for me. No, instead he's going and saying, "Hey, I just I, I just think you're great, man, and you deserve you deserve to have more say in what's going on around here. You deserve more power." And of course, this lower judge is probably like, "Yeah, you know what? I do feel like I deserve to have more power. I like this Amalekai guy, you know." And so then, when it comes to wanting to, it says um, members of the church, right? They were led away by Amalekiah to dissensions, notwithstanding the preaching of Helaman and his brethren, yea, notwithstanding their exceedingly great care over the church, for they were high priests over the church. This is in chapter 46, and then in verse 7. And there were many of the church who believed in the flattering words of Amalekiah. Therefore they dissented even from the church, and thus were the affairs of the people of Nephi exceedingly precarious and dangerous, notwithstanding their great victory which they had won over the Lamanites and their great rejoicings which they had had because of their deliverance by the hand of the Lord. Thus we see how quick the children of men do forget the Lord their God, yea, and how quick to do iniquity and to be led away by the evil one. Yea, and we also see the great wickedness one very wicked man can cause to take place among the children of men. This guy, all he did was stir the pot, and not he, he, he wasn't trying to make positive change. He wasn't trying to say, you know, this is great, but we can be better. No, he was saying, here's my motive. Here's what I'm going to do to make it happen. And as long as I can get people to want power also, and to forget the reason why they're doing stuff, to forget the title of liberty, forget everything that they fought for, then, uh, you know, maybe it's not inherently, he wasn't probably going and telling them, I, I want to be in power, and here's the things I want to do. But, but they were, for whatever reason, really persuaded by him. They thought that he was incredible. And a lot of good, well-meaning people, I think with good intentions, were doomed. You know, and to the point where they left the church. They were dissuaded from the gospel. And I think that that is textbook way that Satan works. He won't present you with this obviously evil thing because he knows that you're probably most likely to reject that. But what he'll present you with is something that's plausibly good or that has some good aspects to it. Or, you know, if you look past a couple of the dark things, it's actually really, really good, you know, what this guy is saying. And people get like, well, yeah, I, I think it's time for change. I think it's time that we, we, we change things up. This Amalekiah guy, yeah, he may not be my best friend, but at the same time, he's, he's proposing a lot of interesting ideas. 
maybe it is time for a change, you know? And it's like, well, what are you actually accepting here? You know, what are you actually saying yes to? He's not going to tell you up front what you're saying yes to. He's using whatever tactics he can to make you forget and just flattering you up, you know? Very interesting. It's, it's very much like like I mentioned earlier when when he has his servant stab the king and then he cries like outrage. How could this happen? If anybody loved the king, join me and we'll chase them down. You know, all, this whole thing where it's like that's a good sentiment. The sentiment of this murder shouldn't occur. This is a terrible thing. We have to bring people to justice or this king was good to us. Let's honor him, you know, twist it up into like um, a plan to get the people to create an evil, to create an evil, you know. It's like, uh, and, and, and we see that a lot. Sometimes people will say things, especially online, well, if you agree that uh, cats are the best, most adorable creatures in the world. You will come to me and help me burn that building down or something like that. And it's like, no, I do like cats and I think they are great. But how does that lead us from here to there to doing this other thing? And it's just a form of manipulation. I thought it was really interesting. And I'm, if we jump back to Alma 37, when Alma's talking with Helaman, he specifically tells them about these secret and abominable combinations. You know, in verse 27, Now, my son, I would that you retain all their oaths and their covenants and their agreements. And then in 29, Therefore you shall keep these secret plans and oaths and covenants from these people. So Alma already was aware of this kind of work, this kind of tactics. And only their wickedness and their murders and their abominations he shall make known unto them. So he knew that these people were going to murder and do all sorts of abominations. And then you shall teach them to abhor such wickedness. He tells Helaman this, which is exactly what they're having to deal with over here. It's basically the Amalekites and Amalekiah are just starting these secret combinations to get power, to get gain, all over again. And then you have Helaman being a true and faithful guy, and Moroni and all these guys doing those exact same things that Alma tells them to do. In, in the middle of verse 29, he says, teach them to abhor such wickedness and abominations and murders. And, and then he kind of spells out all the terrible things that will happen. You'll be ripe for destruction. And then preach unto them repentance, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All, all the things that every prophet tells us to do. Um, and that's what they go. They go out and they preach these things. But unfortunately, in Alma 45, in the last verse, like you mentioned, the people were proud, lifted up in their hearts because of their exceedingly great riches. And I thought about that for a while and I thought, man... You have two kind of two competing philosophies, the Lamanites or Amalekiah leading the Lamanites into the only way we can prosper is to subjugate the Nephites into slavery and bondage. Make them do what we want them to do, mainly because they wanted to be idle. They wanted to have power over others and not be industrious and that it tells us that in the book of mormon everywhere right and then you have 
the Nephites who are saying, we need to obey the Lord, we need to prosper, but their greatest threat isn't the threat that they want to subjugate you. Your greatest threat is because of the easiness of the way in your prosperity, you will not follow the Lord and you will then for fall into bondage. And, and I thought, what is because of exceedingly great riches? And I try to picture myself there. What would I be like? What would my life be? You probably would live in a nice town, right? Food would be easy to come by. You'd feel pretty secure. You'd have rugs and feathers. and You could get fat because there's so much food, right? And then you, you know, they grew rich in their own eyes and would not give heed to the words or to walk right. And then you would start to slowly say, I don't have to go to church every Sunday. Or, "Ah, well, maybe I like that person over there, even though I'm married to that person over there. And maybe I can just flirt with that. Or maybe I can do just little things. And then before you know it, you're either like the people in the Ramiumpton, we're so much better than everybody else. I can't believe how great we have it and just say meaningless things. Or you become totally apostate where you're, we don't need the Lord in our lives. We don't even need to pretend. There's no such thing. No one knows these things, right? I don't know. I, I just see that a lot in our day. I mean, we have, I, I was just, we have such great riches in our land. Rather, and even here in Utah, you know, there's a lot of commotion going on around the nation, but Utah is still pretty untouched and fairly safe. And it's hard, easy for us to forget that we should be very grateful for that. We should be humble and we should seek to help others and not just, and, and we should seek to continue to be obedient. Well, no, I, I think also we need to recognize that um, just because we, we live in a different environment here doesn't mean that it's that way everywhere. That because we don't sense certain things as being a problem doesn't mean that necessarily they aren't a problem elsewhere. And so if we're not being directly affected by riots or by physical confrontation or by war or, or by pestilence or by famine doesn't mean that we that those things aren't happening elsewhere and doesn't mean that they um, that we shouldn't help whenever we can right um, really interesting part is on the Mount Antipas this this whole section in, in chapter 47 uh, man oh man I mean, we've kind of alluded to it so far, but I, I kind of wanted to get a little bit more detailed on it because this is a Malachiah <laughs> acting, trying to take over the Lamanite armies. He's got a, a command of some guys, but he wants to go basically dethrone the king, and he sends a message to Lahontai in verse 10. Is that it came to pass that when it was night, he's in a secret embassy into the Mount Antipas, desiring that the leader of those who were upon the mount, whose name was Lahontai, that he should come down to the foot of the mount, for he desired to speak with them. 
And it came to pass that when Lahontai received the message, he durst not go down to the foot of the mountain. I think Lahontai was like, uh, I don't like this, you know. <laughs> and it came to pass that Malachi sent, uh, sent again the second time, desiring him to come down. And it came to pass that Lahontai would not. And he sent again the third time. And then verse 12, it came to pass that when Amalekiah found that he could not get Lahontai to come down off the mount, he went up into the mount, nearly to Lahontai's camp, and he sent again the fourth time his message unto Lahontai, desiring that he would come down and that he would bring his guards with him. This is, in my mind, Satan action 101. Like, hey, you should come do this. No, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. Hey, come on. It's not that bad. Come on, do this. No, I'm not going to do that. I don't do those things. Hey, okay. Well, maybe don't come and do it. We'll come to you almost all the way to you. You can come down and even bring some of your guards with you. That way you know you're safe still. And he didn't go to his camp. He didn't go all the way up to Lahontai's camp and say, Hey, I know you wouldn't come down in good faith. Here I am to talk to you. I've come to your camp. He still wanted him to come down off of that. And I've heard the comparison in the past that this is how kind of we treat our standards, right? If we if we keep our standards high, then we won't ever come down, not even a little bit. Not even just come down a little bit to meet them at a middle ground. That we'll say, no, I'm not coming down from this. This is where I stand. Because um, that's really when the problem started. Right. He was kind of under threat, but really, I think Amalekiah knew that he wasn't going to be able to uh, have anything long-lasting unless he uh, took Lahontai out. And so, really, when Lahontai comes down off the mount just that little tiny bit, um, that's when the problems really start for him. Because he did come down, and then uh, in verse 13... Amalekiah desired him to come down with his army in the nighttime and surround those men in their camps over whom the king had given him command, and he would deliver them up to Lahontai's hands. And he would you make know, him second leader over the whole army. He's even saying, look, I don't want to be in charge. Look, come down. You can take control of these guys. I just want to be second in command. That's all I want. Right? You're still in charge. You're still the main guy. This is all his flattering words still, right? So they did it. You know, what's fascinating to me is, one, this could not have been as quick as these things say it happened. And and then it took me a while to understand that Lehontai was second in command to the king of the Lamanites. Okay. And then uh, Amalekai wants to be second in command to Lehontai so then he can kill him. He, and then he becomes second in command to the king of the land. And then he kills the king, and then he becomes the king. And it's quite the plan. If if <laughs> if you came to me and said, hey, let's do this, I would think you're crazy. It's not going to work. But what he's preying on is he, wicked man's lust for power. Yeah. And so he tempts Lehontai with, hey, you know, the king gave me all these men. You can have them, and then you're more powerful. And probably Lehontai is thinking, then I could probably challenge the king. He could, he might do the same thing. It's almost like this, this house of cards that you know, like this, uh, you know. And so, 
and maybe he even discussed that with him, you know, hey, and then your power, and then we, and then you, and then you make me second, but then he kind of skips that and kills him, and then he, it says he poisons him by degrees. Yeah. This Which is, is the, like, listen, the, right before that verse, he establishes, now it was custom among the Lamanites if their chief leader was killed to appoint the second leader to be their chief leader. So, theoretically, he could have walked up there and said, okay, I, I'm Lehontai, now that I'm in charge of everyone, I'm naming Amalekiah as my second-in-command. And Amalekiah could have gone and killed him right there, you know? And been like, now I'm in charge, everybody. But instead, he does it in this super sneaky way. Poison him by degrees. It's not even like, I'm going to poison him all at once. It's like little by little. This must have taken a long time, you know? He got sick. The people are like, wow, are you? I'm not feeling well. What's the matter? I don't know. I just don't feel well in the last, I don't know, week or so. I've been feeling pretty sick. And little by little, he's just poisoning this guy to death. And it's plausible deniability for him to be able to say, I didn't kill him. How could you say? Everyone knows he was sick. He's been sick for a while. Why are you saying I killed him? Well, well he kind of does that. You know, if, if this was a movie <laughs> and I was directing it, the way I see this this scene playing out is he he slowly gives him something that doesn't make him feel well but in the meantime hey Lehontai, let, let's become like let's be best friends yeah and show the man here that we are buds that there's no way i could be the one that betrayed you let's go hunting together let's get drunk together let's go raid a couple villages and, <laughs> and then you know and that's why by degrees and it took time maybe it took weeks months who knows and so then when it happens, he's won the loyalty of his men. And then, because now all of them are going to be in cahoots with the next part of the process that he needs them to. Because if he would have done it too quickly, they, they might have said to the other Lemonite King, hey, this is kind of fishy here, you, you know. I don't know. It just seems like that Amalekiah is one of those friends that pretends to be your friend but secretly are trying to undermine you, which is probably half of the friendships out there, especially that you have in high school, <laughs> and the 90% of the online interactions you have with people. You know, it's like, it's very little integrity, and there's always some sort of undermining scheme to get power, to get gain over somebody. Well, and it's, it's this is once again, from the Satan playbook, right? I'm not going to poison you all at once. It'll be little by little. You're going to you're gonna start to feel it, and then before you know it, it's too late. And if you it don't almost... remove, remove this possibility from your life, temptation is not going to be a jug of poison. It's going to be little by little, just getting you a little bit more involved in something you shouldn't be until the point where you can't escape it anymore, and it's taking you, right? Well, and... Really, like I said, this all this whole problem started when he left his camp. When he yeah. came down that little tiny bit, you know, off the mount of Antipas down to go meet Amalekiah. That's when all of this went to crap. Well, he came down and he hears a proposition that sounds really good for him. Like Amalekiah, uh, Lehontai, come down here. Hey, man. If you surround us, you can have half this army. You know, you, you can you be more powerful. It's almost it feels almost like a like a mobster slash a drug cartel. 
consolidating yeah. power or something. Like, hey, uh, you know. And, and I only ask, I mean, just, just let well, me. Want, just let make me, me second. second. Which, which is very similar to how, you know, when Satan gets you to lower a standard, it, it it's always coded and painted and wrapped in beautiful wrapping that's going to, this is going to be good. This is happiness. You know, hey, you go to that bar. You're not going to drink, but you can have fun with your friends there. You don't want to be left out. And and they will like you even more. Oh, okay, yeah, I'll go. You can you know? go and, and then you can, they'll get you a Sprite and you'll be fine. No, it's not like you're going to become an alcoholic overnight. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a, you know, not a perfect example, you know, right? But but it's something like that, you know? Hey, hey, you go do this and uh, and it'll be good for you, you know? And it appears good. And and immediately it probably was good. You know, the next day he probably wakes up and he's like, oh, my army's doubled in size. I'm doing real good. I was scared of this guy before. Now he's my friend, you know? (laughs) Well, I'm sure that uh, before Malachi showed up, Lahontai had a second in command. Which I always think about that guy. Like, he's sitting there going, wait, <laughs> what's happening here? <laughs> you know? Poor dude, and I don't know his name, um, but he's probably like, wait, who is this guy? And here's, and maybe Lahontai went to him and was like, okay, this guy's proposing that we go down and take over his army. And all he wants is to be second in command. This is a win-win, right? Like, I'm going to be in charge of a lot of people and have this really powerful guy as my second. This is a win-win, right? And his advisors are sitting there going, I mean, yeah, I can't really see anything wrong with this. Maybe someone was like, I don't know. It seems kind of well, like he's being sneaky. And they're like, oh, come on, dude. Why would he do that? He doesn't want to be in what? charge. He wants to be second in command. But you know, it also had to cross their mind. Oh, if he betrays us, we'll kill him. Oh yeah, we'll just kill him. We'll just kill him. We'll just get rid of. Him. We'll poison him by degrees. <laughs> but what what you don't understand is that sometimes your vice kills you, and 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 we think a lot about that. You know, hey, I can start this, and at any point I can quit. I can throw, I just throw it away. I can I can throw it away, or ah, I'll just find new friends. But then you realize that that takes over you. And now it kills you, and now you're a casualty, and end up in a place where you're like, "How did it get to this?" I really like that story, just because it's, again, a really good illustration of of how Satan works and how anyone can be susceptible to that kind of flattery and that kind of desire for power, and even just wanting to get along. You know, I just want to get along with everybody. Well. Not that you shouldn't get along with people, but you need to be aware of what, of how this can work. When are, when do you start to allow things to, to relax? You know, when do you allow yourself to let things in your life that you shouldn't? So, one one thing that I thought of in the next chapter, in uh, verse forty-eight, in verse eleven, where it says, "Amarona was a strong and mighty man. He was a man of perfect understanding." And I think that's interesting, that perfect understanding. It kind of seems like Moroni wouldn't have fallen for this trick. For for Lihon. Like, if 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 Tiankum would have gone to Moroni, I'd be like, Moroni, come down here. You know, I, I mean, if they were totally different, you know, they're, they're totally different ethics, right? But 
he's a perfect understanding. Yea, a man who did not delight in bloodshed, a man whose soul did joy in the liberty and the freedom of his country and his brethren from bondage and slavery. Yea, a man whose heart did swell with thanksgiving to his God for the many privileges and blessings which he bestowed upon his people, a man who did labor exceedingly for the welfare and the safety of his people. Yea, and he was a man who was firm in the faith of Christ. He had sworn with an oath to defend his people, his rights, and his country, and his religion, even to the loss of his blood. And then it keeps going. The Nephites were taught to defend themselves, and as long as they weren't the first ones to commit, or the second ones, that they could defend themselves. Uh, you know, it just, it, it's so, it's a big contrast between Amalekai and Moroni, you know. And that's something I think Mormons trying to show us is, Amalekai is over here doing deceptive things that propelled him in the sight of others to have great power and, and success, it feels like worldly success. Moroni is taking the road of no shortcuts. There aren't any shortcuts here. We're going to start at step one, we're going to build, we're going to go to step two, and we're going to progress, and we're going to be grateful to the Lord, we're going to be consistent, and then you're going to have these two clashing, almost like mentalities. And how does it wash out? If, you know, the right prevails. But the one is more, you know, Amalekai's method at times is more attractive. It feeds the natural man. It makes us like, if I get angry and I want revenge, something wrong done to me, it kind of fits that personality style. Where Moroni would say, hey, can we work this out? You guys take an oath and not do this again and we can stop this nonsense, right? Stop all this shedding of blood, you know. But if we have to, we're not putting up with that, you know. I also think it was interesting that this this um, freedom is mentioned so much in these chapters. Freedom. The Nephites are fighting for freedom. But I thought to myself, the Lamanites probably, and the Amalekites, probably think they're very free. Meaning free to do whatever they want. Free to murder, free to uh, might is right type of mentality, where the the Nephites are saying we want freedom, but with that freedom, what we're going to do is we're going to be disciplined. We're going to bridle our passions. We're going to uh, treat people with respect. We're not going to do wrong to our neighbor. So, and I think sometimes, especially in our day, we think freedom means more what Amalekai is pursuing, freedom to do whatever the heck you want. Right. And the freedom that I see here that's beneficial is freedom to be obedient, which sometimes comes across as like they contradict each other. But by being free to be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you ultimately truly become free. And there, that freedom is the freedom from bondage, whether physical or spiritual bondage, right? But you're not free because you're constantly having to bridle your passions, you're constantly having to temper yourself. And to the outside person who's not, he doesn't know what that feels like, it feels very restrictive. It feels like the opposite of freedom. Why wouldn't freedom be more like a Malachi where 
people. Kill whoever you want, take whoever you want. Priest said, no, I just carry it away. Some girl's bathing by a pool, let's pick them up and carry them off, you know? You know, like, that, it's not freedom, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know, it's, it's a weird thing. The term freedom here, which is in our day, is also used. It's kind of muddy. It's a muddy, it's, you, you think freedom means you, you have no hidden inhibitions, inhibitions you have no restrictions you can do whatever you want but that's not freedom at some point that's anarchy you know <laughs> yeah and i think that's what what moroni is trying to show is that by by following these certain rules and by doing these certain things we will be able to be more free and you will be happier than if you just follow whatever whim comes up or you decide you know, it's about what I want and what I am willing to do or not do, not about the greater good, which is what Moroni is pushing the entire time, right? This is for our people, our families. This is for the, the, the greater good of everyone, including the individual. Meanwhile, Amalekiah is basically like, no, this is about me. This is about what I want. Yeah. And everyone in that mindset is looking out for themselves is kind of just contributing to a greater chaos. It's interesting in the, in the in the remaining chapters how many times they talk about fortifying the cities and building up fortifications against the Lamanites and building new cities. And when they do that, they're building these fortifications. And you know, going back to the symbolism of that is obviously you know what fortifications are you building in your life against temptation against Satan? But every time I think about all of this work that they're putting into this, including Helaman and his people going around teaching the gospel to everybody, it, it throws me back to chapter 45, when Alma is kind of saying his last few words, and he gives this prophecy in uh, verse 9, But behold, I have somewhat to prophesy unto thee, but what I prophesy unto thee shall not make known, yea, I will prophesy... What I prophesy unto thee shall not be made known, even until the prophecy is fulfilled. Therefore, write the words which I shall say. He's basically saying, I'm going to tell you something. I don't want you to make this public, but I want you to make a record of it. Because we're not ready to hear it. The people aren't ready for this. And these are the words. Behold, I perceive that this is the, this very people, the Nephites, according to the spirit of revelation which is in me. In 400 years from the time that Christ shall manifest himself unto them, shall dwindle in unbelief. Yea, and then shall they see wars and pestilences, yea, famines and bloodshed, even until the people of Nephi shall become extinct. So he's he's prophesying the downfall of his people. And he's telling Helaman, who is now entrusted with this sacred prophecy, that he can't tell anybody. And what what is Helaman going through when they're building fortifications, they're going out and teaching and baptizing? And he's sitting here going, in like 470 years, we're all going to be gone. And how, he, that didn't stop him. He didn't say, oh, well, this is all a waste of time anyway. If we're all going to go extinct and we're all going to fall, then why even bother? No, he said, okay, all right, well, I've been entrusted with this, with writing this stuff down, with teaching the gospel, with baptizing with supporting Moroni, with supporting Nephiha and all these other people. 
and he he has a knowledge of the inevitable demise of his people, and yet that still doesn't make him stop giving it a hundred percent. That to me, and he also doesn't go and say, "All right, listen, everybody, I, I got I got some info. Please don't tell anyone." But all well, this is for naught, you know. I th- I think that's one of the difficult things of all of these prophets, all the prophets. In through all these dispensations until they saw the Lord let them see the final dispensation that wasn't going to fall away, that was going to be there. You know, maybe they were going to go through a lot, which, you know, they will. But all of these, that's the difficult part about all the dispensations that they all ended up in some sort of form of apostasy, you know. And then, you know, Moses saw this, uh, Noah, you know, all of these, even since the beginning, Adam, imagine being Adam and being like, what's going to happen to, you know, but then all of that loss, when viewed from our perspective of like civilizations falling and rising, rising and falling, can feel, man, that sucks. That's really demotivating. But then to them, they get to view something else, which is the good news. The good news is you're not forgotten. The good news is a Savior is coming or has come, whichever side of the timeline you're on. You're <laughs> and the good news is, is all things, everyone is numbered unto him. No one is lost only the ones that choose to be lost and 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 that's where yeah my grandkids may fall away or my great-great-grandkids but darn it i can help my kids not fall away you know and teach them and implore them and it's kind of hard because i would are are things written in stone you know i i think about that like could 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 they have changed it, you know? And there's part of me that I think, yeah. I think, yeah. I, especially in, in 3 Nephi 11 when, when Christ comes and he is lingering with the people and he's blessing the kids and he's praying with them. And then he has other plans. He's like, guys, I got to go. And then he looks at them and he sees that they looked at him as if they wanted him to carry a little bit longer. And then he's like, well, do you have any sick among you? Do you have any that are lame and withered? And, and, and then, like, I don't know, I, I feel like at that moment he kind of adjusted his plan. He kind of said, you know what, I'll stay some more. You know? And I, I, I wonder if, you know, we kind of read a little bit of that in The Lord of the Vineyard. You know, in, in Jacob 5, you know, the allegory of the olive tree. And he's with the vineyard and let's dung it one more time. Yeah, yeah, but it's not doing good. No, just one more time. Let's just see if we can get something, you know. And and that's, or, or when uh, Abraham goes to to save Lot and, and he prays, can you please not destroy the city? My nephew's there. Uh, no, it's going to happen. Well, what about... What about if I find a hundred? Okay, if you find a hundred, okay. What if you find ten? Okay, what if you just let me go get them out? Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> right? Well, I, I yeah. don't know. I... 
we're always free to, to exercise agency and to say that it was an inevitable demise is to say that people could not have chosen the right. But I think what it is, is it's a, it's a prophecy that people would no longer desire to do good. And that they would be so corrupted and so interested in self-serving and in power and in flattering each other and in riches and all that, that they would stop even caring about doing good. That their agency would no longer be used to follow the gospel. And I think we see several times this pride cycle of humbling themselves, gaining a testimony, baptizing a bunch of people, really fortifying the church, and then the pride comes in, and then everything falls apart. And so when you're saying, yeah, we're going to give them one more chance, we're going to give them one more chance, maybe 470-whatever was their last chance. Maybe that was the end of a series of multiple chances, and mercy cannot rob justice, right? And it kind of gets to the point where the Lord is like, look, I've given this people every benefit of the doubt. They no longer desire to do righteousness. They're, they're a wicked people. And it's time that they are punished for that. And it's time that they fall away. And that's but, when an apostasy happens. But right? look, at, look at the beautiful part that that's how this story came about. Yeah. It's the yeah. people in Sarahem, uh, I mean Jerusalem, uh, you know, over and over told. And Lehi was told... Come on, get out, you know. And from you, we'll have another testament of how good the Lord and merciful he is with his children. And there's more than that. There's more, more records that we don't know. We only have a small portion. There could be more people and more civilizations, and we believe that. We believe there's the lost tribes, you know. We believe in the city of Enoch is somewhere floating around somewhere, right? In heaven, or who knows, right? But it shows that, that God does care about everyone. That even though this people got to the point where they weren't going to pay attention anymore and they had to fall away, or they decided to fall away, doesn't mean that the rest of humanity for the rest of time should be punished. That we have an opportunity to have those scriptures to learn from them and to say, I don't think we should be like that. Maybe we can learn from their mistakes. Maybe we can catch ourselves when we fall into pride. Maybe we can catch ourselves when we start wanting power more than, and riches more than the kingdom of God. And maybe we can learn from that and straighten ourselves out. And maybe not everyone will. Maybe some people will still fall away. But the Heavenly Father says, you know, you have that agency to choose. Here's an example of people who chose poorly. Here's an example of people who chose well. Here's the outcomes long term, right? Maybe those that chose poorly, in the moment, they reveled in joy and happiness of whatever parties they went to. And in the long run, they found that it was very temporary and short-lived. Meanwhile, these people that kind of were able to manage themselves and their, their mortal appetites and desires, in the long term, they received ultimate glory, right? Which do you choose? You can either have it now for the temporary or have it in the future forever. And in the meantime, you can learn that true freedom is by obedient, being obedient to the commandments. The tr through true freedom, you obey the Lord, and He opens up opportunities for you. It, it's really interesting, because even though 
he wants all of us as a as a people to progress. He's also very focused on if some fall away, that's their decision. And each individual has their right to choose. Now, what if we we think about you know, we look at if we look at the entire book more or these chapters, you know, if we step back and look at the entire story, it's it's about these two civilizations, two people, you know, policies, ways of thinking and stuff. But what about if it's one person, you know? What if this is the story of us? What are our secret combinations that will be our downfall? The things that we do that are shortcuts, that are outside of God's process in order of doing things, that we say, uh, that'll never be brought to light. Or, you know, it feels good now and I like having this power and, and whatever, right? And and then what are the Moroni or gospel characteristics that we should be using in our personality to to strengthen our character? There's very little I can do to change the entire world without changing myself first, you know? And when you start, it's like the sons of Mosiah. Once they became converted, then their ability to influence for good exponentially exploded, right? You know, we, we look at Ammon, you know, when he went to 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 the king you know, of that land and he said, hey, let me just be thy servant. Let me just be a good example. Now, what are the things within us that we need to secret combinations we need to get rid of? Bad habits, false traditions, and what are the good things that we need to shore up and fortify? And in some cases, may not even be a talent. It's just you gotta develop a talent, or you gotta go look at that one and 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 make it just better. Just make it better. Uh, it could be organization, it could be punctuality, it could be reading the scriptures, it could be uh, communication, the way you speak, the uh, trying not to, you know, even in our minds, like trying to refrain from saying mean things or thinking mean things about others. You know, there's a, the gospel can be this filter that can strain the unwanted elements from our thoughts all the way to our actions. And it just reminds me of this gentleman who, who's a really good professor in, in the grappling arts, you know, to, to, you know, in the sports of grappling. And he'll, he'll tell his students over and over again, if you cannot control your body or do a movement correctly, you will never control someone else's body, you know? when they're grappling and and I and it just kind of kind of hits home in these scriptures where if you yourself aren't good with God you will not see clearly to be able to identify oh Lihontai I should stay up there I shouldn't come down or this Amalekai has something hidden behind that smile there there's you know uh, there's something not right. It sounds too good to be true. Or this city uh, feels okay. 
it'd be very hard for Limas to come all the way over here to attack it, but I should defend it. It'd be very hard for that to be a threat to my family or, or this to, to suck up my time or, or this business that seems to be going well. To pay. You know, whatever, you know. And we know that the Lord gave a lot of their solutions were very practical. And, and they could all do it. It was just a matter of doing it. It wasn't so much a matter of they didn't know what to do. They knew what to do. They had leaders who knew what to do. The people just had to do it. And it's kind of in our day. We have a leader and a prophet and brethren and 70s and, and bishops and state presidents and, and even missionaries all over the place. But what to do is there. It's the doing it. That's the tricky part, you know. That's the part that we we tend to become prideful and, and think we know best. The Book of Mormon is truly the keystone of our religion, and that a man and woman will get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. And if you then go and do what he would have you do, your power to trust him will grow, and in time, you will be overwhelmed with gratitude to find that he has come to trust you. There is no end to the good we can do, to the influence we can have with others. Let us not dwell on the critical or the negative. Let us pray for strength. Let us pray for capacity and desire to assist others. Let us radiate the light of the gospel at all times and in all places, that the Spirit of the Redeemer may radiate from us. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.